When I was 10 years old, my dad put a basketball hoop up in our backyard. I love basketball. And day after day, I would be out in the backyard dribbling and shooting and pounding the ball under that basketball hoop. Of course, this caused a problem for my dad. He liked a nice lawn. And the constant pounding of sneakers and basketballs made it impossible for him to grow any grass underneath that basketball goal. It looked sort of like this. In fact, the last time I was by the old house, that bare spot was still there. Well, in Daniel chapter 11, the spotlight is also on the Father's backyard. I mean, God the Father's backyard. And where might that be? How about the land called Israel? You see, it's not the Jews who own the land. It's not the Arabs who own it either. All the earth belongs to God. And throughout the Bible, the Lord exercises a special claim on the land of Israel. He has leased it to the Jews, but it belongs to him. And in Daniel chapter 11, for 150 years, the kings of Syria and the kings of Egypt pound the ground in the father's backyard. Chapter 11 begins. Also, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now, these are the words of the heavenly messenger who's been dispatched to communicate to Daniel the future of God's people, Israel. The Jews, remember, had spent 70 years in Babylon in captivity. Daniel knew that a new day was dawning for his people, for Israel. But what would the future hold? What would it bring? Well, in chapter 11, God gives to Daniel a panoramic view of what's ahead for Israel over the next 280 years, and even into the end times. Daniel's vision is so exact that we read it as history. Just remember, it's not history, it's prophecy. Written by Daniel in 530 B.C., fulfilled not until several hundred years later. These predictions all came true before the fact and proved conclusively that the Bible is of supernatural origin. Well, verse 2 tells us, And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Now, after Cyrus and his co-regent Darius, three more Persian kings came to power. First was Cyrus' son, a man named Cambyses. He reigned from 530 to 522 B.C. Second was a man that we now call Pseudo-Smyrtus, who reigned in 522 B.C. Pseudo kind of tips off what's going on here. He was actually an imposter who gained access to the royal household because he somehow looked like Cambyses' son. Well, once he invaded the royal court, he was eventually able to steal the throne. This fake prince lasted for six months before he was murdered. The third king was named Darius Histaspes, who reigned from 521 to 486. And this fourth king, referred to here as far richer than them all, was a king known to secular history as Xerxes and to biblical history as Ahasuerus. Now this Ahasuerus, or this Xerxes, was the Persian king who co-starred in the story of Esther, if you're familiar with that book. He was an egomaniac who set out to conquer Greece. Here we're told he stirred up against against the realm of Greece. He stirred up all against the realm of Greece. Xerxes allied himself with the Phoenician city of Carthage, which also attacked Greek colonies in Sicily and in Italy. To invade Greece, Xerxes mounted this large army. In fact, it was the largest army probably the world has ever seen, some three million men. He took four years to train his army, and then in just seven days, he marched his army across the Hellespont on specially built barges. 
His invasion, though, of Greece proved to be the Persian Waterloo. Despite his formidable army, he was crushed soundly by the Greeks, and he was sent back to Persia limping. Xerxes went on to reign from 485 to 465, and six other Persian kings followed. Xerxes' defeat, though, marked the beginning of the end for the Persian Empire. Well, Daniel goes on. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And who is this mighty king? None other than Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, in 337 B.C., at the tender age of 19 years old, became the general of the Greek army. And in just 10 short years, he conquered the whole known world. Legend has it that at the age of 33, he laid on his bed and he cried, for there were no more worlds for him to conquer. Verse 4 tells us, And when he had arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which would have been according to custom with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. Now it's said that just before Alexander the Great died, he was asked to name his successor. He whispered these words, Give it to the strong. Oh boy. Little did he know what his survival of the fittest approach would mean to his own family. It actually involved the death of his own royal family. Within 15 years after his death, the entire family of Alexander had been murdered by each other, all vying for the throne. Alexander did have two sons. One was illegitimate and one was born after his death. Neither of his sons was recognized as his rightful heir. His half-brother Philip did reign for six years before he too was murdered. The kingdom was eventually divided among his four generals, which was an amazing fulfillment of Daniel 11, verse 4. For even though it was contrary to Oriental custom, Alexander's reign was handed down, and I quote, not among his posterity. Now from verses 5 through 20, the focus now of the prophecy becomes the two Greek generals and their successors who lived just north and south of Israel. The Seleucids took Syria. The general Seleucid and his heirs are now identified in the coming verses as the kings of the north. Ptolemy ruled Egypt. He and his successors now become the kings of the south. And remember, in between these two Greek empires is the land of Israel, the father's backyard. And for a century and a half, these Greek kings in Syria and Egypt alternately attack each other and trample down the father's backyard. They pound the ground. They toss around God's people, the Jews. And here Daniel records these events four centuries in advance. Remember the three stooges? Moe, Larry, and Curly. You remember those guys. Well, Moe and Larry were always taking out their frustrations on Curly. He was the brunt of their angst. Well, picture Syria and Egypt as sort of Moe and Larry. And in between, getting bonked on his head constantly is Curly, the Jews. Six Syrian wars occur in the father's backyard. And it's the, both Syria and Egypt taking out their frustrations on the Jews. Heard the other day that a cable station ran 12 straight hours of the Three Stooges. Well, the bonking in chapter 11 goes on for approximately 150 years. Verse 5. Now also, the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes. And he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. This was Ptolemy I, who reigned from 323 to 285. His prince was a fellow general who originally fought by his side in the Greek army, Seleucus Nicator, who then took over the lands 
in the north. This Seleucid became his rival, stole the northern portion of Ptolemy's kingdom, and established his own throne. It was this betrayal that became the root of the bitter rivalry that lasted for centuries between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. In fact, the Seleucid dynasty in its capital of Antioch, that'll be important because a lot of these kings get named Antiochus after the capital, became the largest of all four Greek empires. At one point, it had more territory than the other three combined. It goes on, and at the end of some years, they shall join forces. For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. Now, the Egyptian son, Ptolemy II, he feared his northern neighbor, so he established a peace treaty with Syria. In ancient times and in Oriental cultures, the signing of a treaty was affected by the giving of a daughter in marriage. This made the two rival kings one family, became less likely to kill each other. Ptolemy II, he gave his daughter, Berenice, to Antiochus II, king of the north, But in order to take her to be his wife, Antiochus, he had a problem. He already had a wife. And so he had to divorce his wife at the time, a woman named Laodice. Yet Antiochus, the problem is, he didn't like his Egyptian princess. And he had to wait until his father-in-law died off. When he did, he annulled the marriage to Berenice and he took back Laodice. That sets up the next verse. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, that was Berenice, and neither he, Antiochus, nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her and with him who begot her and with him who strengthened her in those times. It seems that Antiochus' jilted wife, Laodice, was not a very forgiving gal. She didn't like being jilted. As the old saying goes, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And in retaliation for being dumped, she poisoned both Antiochus and Berenice. Verse 7. But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt, with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Ptolemy III was Berenice's Egyptian brother. And when he heard what had happened to his sister, he invaded Syria seeking revenge. He executed Laodice, he captured the capital of Seleucia, and he carried off tremendous treasure. We know from secular sources he took back to Egypt 4,000 talents of gold, 40,000 talents of silver. Remember, a talent was about 75 to 100 pounds. And 2,500 gold idols. Verse 9. Also, the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. After the invasion of Ptolemy III, peace lasted for 10 years until Seleucus II tried to invade Egypt. His mission was flawed from the very beginning. His army was slaughtered. His navy was lost at sea. He returned home thoroughly vanquished. Now, just to pause for a moment, just to help you understand. In that classic movie, Back to the Future 2, you remember that? Classic, classic. In that classic movie, the evil Biff, he gets his hands on a sports almanac that Marty has brought back from the future. Do do any of you remember this? Okay, good. Maybe good. Maybe you ought ought to upgrade your movies. But anyway. In the movie, he finds, and in the sports almanac, he finds the scores of all the major sporting events over the next 50 years. And you remember what he does. He uses the knowledge to gamble on all those games, and he makes a fortune. Well, if you had been living around the year 200 B.C., And if you were a betting person, and you possessed a copy of the book of Daniel, you too could have made a fortune. For Daniel 11 is recording the scores in advance, predicting the outcomes of 150 years of Syrian and Egyptian contests. It's amazing. 
Verse 10, back to the uh, record. However, his son shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces. The two sons of Seleucus II were Seleucus III and Antiochus III. Or as Antiochus was called, Antiochus Magnus, which means Antiochus the Great. Both these sons were men of war. And one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. This was Antiochus the Great. He attacked the Roman garrison of Ptolemy III, which he had placed to control the conquered areas of Seleucia, Seleucid. Antiochus' assault made Ptolemy IV, the new king of Egypt, extremely angry. And so the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. And this is the biblical record of one of the greatest battles in ancient history. Antiochus III mounted an army of 75,000 troops. Ptolemy countered with a formidable army of his own, 73,000 men, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants, war elephants no less. The Battle of Raphia was the last major war in history to use elephants in combat. Antiochus, he had the larger Indian elephants. Ptolemy had the smaller African elephants. But in the end, Ptolemy's army had more in their trunk than Antiochus. And at Raphia in 217 B.C., Syria fell to Egypt. The famous war, also known as the Battle of Gaza, was one of the largest battles in the ancient world. Verse 12 tells us, When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. Now much of the battle between Antiochus the Great and Ptolemy IV was fought in the father's backyard in Israel. Again, the Jews were in the midst of this Grecian tug of war. History tells us that Ptolemy's victory at Raphia inflated his ego. So much so that on his way back to Egypt, he decided to stop off at the temple in Jerusalem and desecrate it, mock it, blaspheme it. He was about to enter the Holy of Holies when suddenly, miraculously, he was struck down to the ground speechless and couldn't proceed. I imagine God had had enough of this guy. Embarrassed over being incapacitated upon his return to Egypt, he had 40,000 Jews slaughtered. That's what Daniel predicted, casting down tens of thousands. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and more equipment. In other words, Antiochus wouldn't give up. Now in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. Antiochus the Great, he refused to give up. Fourteen years after the battle of Raphia, he invaded Egypt again. This time, though, with great success. In fact, he conquered most of Egypt. Ptolemy IV had died and his son, Ptolemy V, came to power when he was just four years old. The confusing political situation that produced and the lack of leadership made it very easy for Antiochus. We're also told, but he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. Remember, the glorious land is a biblical idiom for Israel, for God's land. So en route to invading Egypt, this Antiochus the Great, he swept through the Jews. Now he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom. And upright ones with him, thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or before him. At the time, 
Egypt had started courting an alliance with a rising power further north in the Mediterranean, the Romans. Rome was now fresh off of victory over Hannibal and Carthage, the Second Punic War. Egypt had gone to Rome to seek help against Syria. Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great, he saw the growing ties between Egypt and Rome, and so he decided to strike a peace treaty with Egypt. Remember what happens when you strike a peace treaty? You give him your daughter. And so Antiochus gave his daughter in marriage to Ptolemy, hoping, though, that she would spy for him, that she would work in his interests. A marriage was arranged between the 12-year-old Ptolemy Epiphanes and Antiochus the Great's daughter, a very famous 11-year-old girl named Elizabeth Taylor. I mean, Cleopatra. Cleopatra. Now, Antiochus's plan failed. Cleopatra fell in love with her Egyptian husband, and she ended up defending Egypt and going to bat for the Egyptians and for the Ptolemy. And this was just as Daniel predicted. Just read it in your Bible. It's amazing. He says, After this he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. But a ruler shall bring the reproach against him to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land. But he shall stumble and fall and not be found. And Ticus the Great, he sought to expand his kingdom northward into Asia Minor. But in 190 B.C., he was greeted by the Roman general Scipio and his 80,000-man army. And at the Battle of Magnesia, Seleucia suffered a crushing defeat. Antiochus, his younger son, was carried off to Rome. That's an important note. This was to ensure his father's good behavior. And Antiochus the Great returned to Syria not so great. The Romans levied heavy taxes upon him. In fact, it forced him to spend the rest of his life robbing temples and raising funds to pay off the Romans. This was the practice that eventually got him killed, as we'll see in verse 20. For there shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. Now Antiochus the great son, Seleucus IV, he succeeded his father. And he sent his IRS, his internal revenue chief, Heliodorus, to Judah to squeeze taxes out of the Jews. Can you imagine a government wanting to squeeze taxes out of its people? Imagine that. Well, Heliodorus, he ended up returning to Antioch, and he poisoned the king, Seleucus. He took the throne for himself. And in his place shall arise a vile person. To whom they will not give the honor of royalty. But he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Here's a vile. Here's a crafty. Here's a deceptive king. Remember Antiochus the Great. He had a son. Where was he? He was living in Rome. His name was Antiochus IV. Don't you love the creative ways these guys give names to their kids? Sandy the second, Sandy the third, Sandy the fourth. Well, when this Antiochus the fourth heard about his brother's death and Heliodorus' claim to the throne, he hatched a plot. He was not the rightful heir to the throne. As Daniel says, he had not been given the honor of royalty. The heir was the son of Seleucus the fourth, a man named Demetrius. But it was while Demetrius was away that Antiochus the fourth had Heliodorus put to death. And through his flatteries, he wooed the Syrians. He took the throne for himself. Just as Daniel said, not in anger or in battle, but through flatteries, through deception. With his slick dealings, with his lying tongue, this Antiochus secured the help of influential friends in Rome and in Pergamum. And he took the throne of Syria. Literally, as Daniel had predicted, he came to power peaceably by intrigue. Now, Up until verse 21, the events that we studied are obviously in the past. In verses 36 to 45, we're going to discover that the events that are discussed there are still future. 
But in verses 22 through 35, these events are both past and future. They sort of overlap. As we noted in chapter 8 of Daniel, Antiochus IV went by another name. He was called Epiphanes, which means God manifest. That's an inflation of his own ego. He considered himself a god or thought he was. And this man became a future, a type of a future anti-Semitic leader that we call the Antichrist. What's said of Antiochus here also foreshadows the coming Antichrist. We'll see it as we go. Verse 22. Now with the force of a flood, that is with an invasion, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken. And also the prince of the covenant. Now, the prince of the covenant was the Jewish high priest. His name at the time was Onias III. Onias opposed Syrian policy, and he was replaced by a Syrian yes-man named Jason. This Jason paid Antiochus an enormous bribe in order to be high priest. That's how it was done in, that, in this period. And after the league is made with him, the evil Antiochus now will make an alliance with the Ptolemy in Egypt, Ptolemy VI now. He shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably, even into the richest places of the province. And he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches. And he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. The Syrian king, Antiochus IV, quietly plunders Egypt's northern suburbs, while pledging his allegiance to the Ptolemy. We're told, and he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. It took a while, but this Ptolemy, he caught on to what Antiochus was up to, and he fought back. It was a great battle. Egypt won. And Ptolemy Philometer was captured. His brother Phison succeeded him. Egypt was defeated. Syria had won. Verse 26. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table but it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. Now after his capture, Antiochus IV, he spoke to his captive, Ptolemy Philometer from Egypt. He promised him that he could return to the throne. In return, Philometer, he pledged his allegiance to Antiochus. Problem was, both guys were lying. Antiochus wanted to rule Egypt. Philometer got word to Phison of Antiochus' intentions. And so before returning to Syria, Antiochus conquered three of four major Egyptian cities. The one holdout was Alexandria. Verse 28. Now while returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant. So he shall do damage and return to his own land. Now remember, all this takes place in the father's backyard. The back and forth, the back and forth, the trampling down of the Jews. On Antiochus' return trip to Syria, he passed through Jerusalem. And you've got to understand, this man hated the Jews. His desire, his goal was to spread Hellenistic culture and religion around the world. But the Jews resisted. They reverenced the Bible. They refused to bow to the Greek gods. And so while passing through the glorious land, he slaughtered 40,000 Jews. He sold another 40,000 Jews into slavery, and he plundered the temple. In fact, to further infuriate the Jews, he even sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple. He sprayed the temple with a swine broth that he had made. His swine soup was the ultimate act of blasphemy. Verse 29. At the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south, but he shall not be like the former or the latter, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return in rage, 
against the holy covenant and do damage. Now again, Antiochus, he attacked Egypt. He marched all the way to Alexandria. But this time he was confronted by ships from Cyprus. Guess who these were? These were the Romans. Rome had a navy base on the island of Cyprus. They confronted Antiochus four miles outside of Alexandria. The Roman general met the king and gave him orders from the Roman senate to cease and desist. Go back home. Antiochus asked for time to consult with his advisors. The general actually drew a circle around Antiochus. This is what he told him. Before you step out of that circle, give me your answer. Antiochus, he wimped out. He replied, if it, is so, please, if, if it so please the Senate, we must depart. And so he left. But Antiochus was not the best guy at handling defeat and humiliation. Remember, he was an egomaniac. He called himself Epiphanes, or God manifest. He considered himself divine. He was embarrassed by the Romans. He returned home humiliated and angry and ready to take out his frustrations on the nearest whipping boy available. And guess who happened to be on his way home? The Jews. And so he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant and forces shall be mustered by him and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Antiochus ordered immediate closure of all Jewish sacrifices. He outlawed the Hebrew scriptures and the keeping of the Sabbath. He destroyed copies of the Old Testament. In fact, if you were caught with the copy of the scriptures, you were sentenced to immediate execution. He also desecrated the temple again. In the Holy of Holies, he erected a statue of the Greek god Zeus. He required that all the Jews bow down and worship this idol. This was the egregious act of blasphemy. This was the abomination that brings desolation or God's wrath. Now it's interesting that Jesus will mention this same phrase in his Olivet Discourse. When we get over to Matthew 24 verse 15, Jesus will say this. And he'll say it about the coming Antichrist. He'll say the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. But remember, Jesus was speaking of the last days, an event still future. So here's the issue for us. Jesus lived 570 years after Daniel. He lived 200 years after Antiochus IV. And yet he speaks of this event that they spoke of as still future. Apparently, this is another of what we've noted as the dual prophecies of the Scripture. I believe the blasphemous actions of Antiochus here are also a type of what the Antichrist will do to defile the temple in the middle of the great tribulation of the last days. Everybody with me? Verse 32. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Now there were Jews who bowed to Antiochus, the Syrian king. But there were others who bucked him and remained loyal to God. They were known as the Mashalim, which means wise. Throughout this time of apostasy and persecution, there were Jews who stayed faithful to God. These Mausoleum, they taught the truths of God at risk to their own lives. I'm certain they opened the scrolls to Daniel chapter 11 and they revealed exactly where they were in God's plans. Verse 33 tells us, And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help. But many shall join with them by intrigue, and some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. 
Now here we find God's purpose for allowing some of these faithful Jews to fall by the sword, to be persecuted. Why? Because persecution always purifies. Remember that. Persecution always purifies. We certainly don't recognize it as such, but persecution can be a good thing for the church. It causes us to address our sin, to stress what matters, to press closer to God. And this was the effect that the persecution launched by Antiochus IV had upon the Jews. His persecution, though, did come to an end in 165 B.C. A group of faithful priests, led by a man named Mattathias and his son, Judas Maccabeus, or as history knows him, boom, Judas the Hammer. I like it. Sounds like a wrestling name, doesn't it? Judas the Hammer. Judas the Hammer, he led a revolt against the, Jew, against, uh, the Syrians. He led a revolt among the Jews. What he did is he organized a guerrilla warfare, a guerrilla army that for six years fought the Syrians until finally they were defeated. They would strike at night. They would strike when they were unexpected. They would set up ambushes. They launched this guerrilla battle. As a result of their efforts, the temple was cleansed. The Syrians were driven back north. And for a brief period of about 100 years, Israel remained independent. They were ruled by the Maccabean priests. They became a kingdom for a short period of time. Now, Antiochus' tyranny ended in 165 B.C. But for most of Israel's last 2,000 years, the Jews have still felt these fires of persecution. Time and time again, anti-Semiticism has raised its ugly head, orchestrated by Satan, his hatred for God's people. It knows no boundaries, no limits. Daniel tells us in verse 35, it will last until the time of the end. And thus, I believe verses 36 to 45 speak of last day's events. Like in chapter 9 where we saw that big gap, I believe there is a gap of at least 2,180 years between verses 35 and 36 here in chapter 11. Daniel's vision now focuses on the worst anti-Semite of all, the Antichrist. Verse 36. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. Antiochus demanded that the Jews worship his Greek gods, and he may even claim to have been a god, but there was no indication he ever exalted himself above all gods, as it says here. That's why I believe Antiochus, this is Antiochus' archetype, the Antichrist. In Revelation 13, we're told the Antichrist sets himself up as God and demands that the world worships him. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, some scholars interpret this to mean that the Antichrist is a Jew, the God of his fathers. I'm not sure there's enough evidence here to draw that conclusion. Daniel 9 verse 26 implies that his ancestors are Romans or Gentiles. I think his ancestry is unknown. It says, nor shall he regard the desire of women. From this, some people have assumed that the Antichrist will be homosexual. There is another alternative interpretation in Genesis 3, verse 15, God promised that Eve, promised Eve that a woman would give birth to the Messiah. Thus, it was the desire of every Jewish girl to be that one. And so the phrase, the desire of women, could simply be a reference to Jesus. And this verse is a prediction that the Antichrist will reject the authority of our Lord Jesus. Nor does he regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. It's likely the Antichrist will be an atheist. He'll be the ultimate humanist. He'll be, his hope will be in himself. He'll trumpet the indomitable spirit of man. We hear so much about that. Verse 38. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses. And a God which his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. You know, this is a cryptic phrase. God of fortresses. What does that mean? 
It could mean that the Antichrist will worship military power, fortresses, that protection and power will be his God, that he starts out as a man of peace but ultimately becomes a man of war. And think, this man could be alive today, being groomed for his role. And thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. Now this foreign God could be his cohort in crime. Revelation 13 speaks of a second beast, a religious personality known as the false prophet. Together these men will rise to power. Or it could be that the Antichrist will ally himself with the foreign God of Islam. That he'll pay gold and silver to promote the God of Islam, and together they will rise to power. It's a possibility. Now from verse 40 to the chapter's close, we find the prelude to Armageddon. It gets mapped out for us. This section describes the skirmishes and the movement of the troops that sets the stage for the war that ends all wars. Verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. Now throughout this chapter, the king of the north has been Syria. The king of the south has been Egypt. And there's no reason that their identities should change now. But they have been attacking each other. Here, though, they both start attacking him. The king that we've been discussing who is the Antichrist. So when the Antichrist brings his armies into Israel to eliminate the Jews, apparently it will be both Egypt and Syria that will rise up to oppose him. He shall also enter the glorious land, that is Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries And the land of Egypt shall not escape. Revelation 12 tells us at the midpoint of the great tribulation, the Antichrist will set up his abomination of desolation in the temple. And at that point, God will have had enough. Satan will be booted out of heaven, and the devil will know that his days are numbered. And so he will bring the armies of Antichrist against Israel. Apparently, Edom, Moab, and Ammon escaped the Antichrist to give refuge to the Jews. We're told in Isaiah that the Jews will flee to Basra or Edom, the city that we're going to go to here next year called Petra. Verse 43, He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. Apparently upon his invasion, the Antichrist will move his headquarters into the land of Israel between the Mediterranean and Jerusalem, the holy mountain. And this will raise eyebrows all around the world. The nations will take note of this man's ambitions, his aggressions. He'll have to be stopped. We're told in Revelation 19, the armies of the world will come and they'll stage for the final battle in a valley just north of Jerusalem called the Valley of Megiddo or Armageddon. And it's at that time Jesus will return. Rather than fight against each other, the armies of the earth will try to fight against the Messiah when they see his sign in the sky. And they would sooner hold back the tide than to fight with Jesus and win. Christ will destroy his foes with one shimmer of his glory, Paul tells us. Satan's kingdom will come to a close. The Antichrist will be cast into the lake of fire. And Satan himself will be chained for 1,000 years. Finally, Satan will get busted. He'll go bankrupt. And it's just so fitting to me that his bankruptcy is recorded right here in Daniel chapter 11. Chapter 11. Goes bankrupt. Some of you will get it later. (laughs) Chapter 12. 
At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Michael is the angel who protects Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Jeremiah was a contemporary of Daniel living in Jerusalem, and he too spoke of a future period of tribulation. He called it the time of Jacob's trouble. This is the last of Daniel 9's 70 weeks. There is a final week, still on God's time clock, his day timer. There's a final week of seven years left for God to accomplish his purposes toward Israel. We talked about that in chapter 9. It begins after the church is raptured and when the Antichrist makes a treaty with Israel. It ends when Jesus returns to rule over this earth. Verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. You know, there's an old spiritual that's entitled that great getting up morning. It speaks of the resurrection of our earthly bodies. Our bodies will be resurrected, but not everyone's going to be getting up on that same morning. Those of us who have received God's grace will be part of the first resurrection. Those who've trusted in Jesus will receive eternal life, but those who are part of the second resurrection will be judged according to their works and sentenced to hell. Now those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You want to be a star? You want your name on the marquee? Those who turn a person to righteousness, that is, who win someone to Jesus, will shine like a star in God's universe. I imagine that applies to those who bring their friends to harvest and see them get saved. Verse 4, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the end of time. And when might that be? Well, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Understand, no one from Daniel to the middle of the 1800s ever traveled faster than horseback. But that began to change in the middle of the 19th century with the invention of the steam engine and electric power. Man was now flying down the road, blazing speeds of 12 miles per hour. When Henry Ford produced the first internal combustion engine, speeds increased to an incredible 25 miles per hour. Oh, but today, we have land vehicles that travel 600 miles per hour. Planes hurtle through the atmosphere at 2,000 miles per hour. Rockets travel at 24,000 miles per hour. One of the signs of the times of the end is that many will run to and fro. Since the days after the flood until 1800, They tell us that knowledge had doubled. In the next 100 years, knowledge doubled again. Today, they say that knowledge is doubling every 18 months. Did you know that 70% of all the medicines we take were developed after World War II? And 80% of all the scientists who have ever lived are alive today? Pressing just a few buttons on a computer can duplicate the life's work of an engineer prior to 1955. As Daniel said, people are running to and fro and knowledge has increased. These are all signs that we're in the time of the end. Verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked and there stood two others, one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank. We assume these two men are angels. And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen And was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven. And swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Time, times, and half a time equals three and a half. Or three and a half years. This This is the period spoken of in Daniel 9. That occurs during the second half of Daniel's 70th week. That last three and a half year period that we call Great Tribulation. This is the time frame between the abomination of desolation and the coming of Jesus. This will be the time of intense persecution for the Jews. 
Remember, this is a period of time that will punish the world, but purify the Jews. That's its purpose. Verse 8. Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. And here's another period of time, 1,290 days. The time times and half a time is three and a half years, or actually 1,260 days. Here, another month gets added on, another 30 days. Apparently, there'll be a month tagged onto, the Daniel, onto Daniel's 70th week. And the question is, why? We really don't know. This could be a time of judgment. In Matthew 25, Jesus teaches the parable of the sheep and the goats, the judgment of the nations. It may be that these 30 days are extended to help administer judgment upon the nations at the time. Verse 12, blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335th day. Here's another time frame, 1,345 days. This is three and a half years or 1,260 days, plus the 30, plus another 45. And I'm speculating. But this could be the time frame for cleanup. There'll be massive carnage, carnage during the Great Tribulation. And in the aftermath, there may need to be some kind of cleanup, and it may be these extra 45 days will be necessary preparation for God's millennial kingdom. Now, the book of Daniel closes. But you... Go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. In other words, hang in there, Daniel. Finish your race. Keep trusting until the end. Once a man, he bought one of those old-fashioned barometers. You know what I'm talking about? He bought an old-fashioned barometer. He had it shipped to him through the mail. He took it out of the box and he mounted it in a prominent place there in his house. But the indicator was stuck on hurricane. He got so upset, he couldn't, he couldn't, he wiggled it, he shook it, he couldn't get the, the barometer to settle properly, and it was just stuck, the, the needle was stuck on hurricane. Well, he planned to send it back to the manufacturer after work that day, but when he got home, his barometer was gone. In fact, his whole house was gone. It turns out the barometer had been right all along. He had denied and questioned what it was telling him. But in the end, the barometer was right. And the book of Daniel is like that barometer. People can deny it if they like. But in the end, they'll see that Daniel was right. Jesus is coming back soon. Let you and I be ready.